Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. In this episode, we're bringing you a plenary speech given by Joel Salatin, which was delivered as part of Acton University 2015. Salatin is a full-time, third-generation alternative farmer in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. He speaks on defending small farms, local food systems, and the right to opt out of the conventional food paradigm. His farm, Polyface Inc., or The Farm of Many Faces, has been featured in Smithsonian Magazine, National Geographic, Gourmet, and countless other radio, television, and print media. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash multimedia. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. It's a really honor to be with you this evening. I just feel like I'm at home here um, w- with all of you, and it's just such a pleasure to, uh, to be able to share with you and visit here this evening. I will say some things that you will be wildly uh, excited about and some things that you may have to go home and cogitate about, and that's okay. Um, I, am a, I am a bridge builder. <clears throat> um, I, I have been... Um, asked to run for uh, political office by the Democrats, the Republicans, the Greens, the Socialists, the Libertarians, and the Constitutional Party. So I figure if everybody uh, wants you that much, you must be um, saying, I I say I I can always irritate everybody and I can always give somebody something to be happy about. So I grew up in this this really uh, eclectic home where during the 60s uh, and the beginning of the, um, you know, the hippie movement, the beaded, braless, uh, bearded uh, revolution, um, all of our farm friends, and, and we, we, my dad was an economist, and he came to this whole you know, kind of organic, and I can't use the word organic, that's illegal, so I, you, know, you gotta have a license to use the word organic, it's now been co-opted by the government. So I have to use other things, you know, like, you know, ecological or whatever. Um, but you know what I mean? It's one of those organic, you know, those weird things. Um, so, so our family uh, completely, my, my uh, grandfather was a charter subscriber to Rodale's Organic Gardening and Farming magazine in 1949 when it came out. <clears throat> Had a compost pile and all that. My dad got that from him. I got it from dad. So I grew up in this very eclectic home. My mom was the first physical education teacher, professor at Bob Jones College. Okay? When it was in Cleveland, Tennessee, before it moved to Greenville, South Carolina. So here we are in this extremely religious right, you know, fundamentalist home. Um, and all of our farm friends are smoking marijuana and come around, you know, a bunch of, you know, hippies. And we go to church on Sunday, you know, and there's a straight lace. And uh, so I, I, live, I live in this very uh, interesting world. And it didn't really hit me until I was a senior at Bob Jones University and a campus leader. I was in all the, you know, I was president of different clubs and different things. And I, I'm a senior and I open up the, uh, the magazine that we put out as a university called um, Faith of the Family. And here I see Dr. Bob Jr., the, the uh, you know, chancellor of the university. The, there's an article, a bit, the big front page article in the Slick magazine is about the food, food fads, food cults. 
And I see where he's going. And about midway through, I read, if you set foot inside of a health food store, you've just joined a food cult. And I'm, you know, kind of discreetly putting around, you know, I'm not sure about this. You know, you can be shipped for this kind of thing. And, uh, and, and that, that was an epiphany. That was a big deal for me because that really showed the, the tension in the Christian community toward this. <clears throat> Let's fast forward to a few years back. I get invited to speak at UC Berkeley. I don't know how many Bob Jones graduates have been invited to speak at UC Berkeley. <laughs> But uh, I go to UC Berkeley and I do my slide program and I do, you know, I'm, a, I'm an absolute creationist, six days, you know, the Bible's real, sanctity of life, do the whole thing at UC Berkeley, get done and the students erupt in a standing ovation. We go outside, we're done, it's dark. The two professors that invited me, as soon as we're outside of the room and all the books are signed and all the hands are shook and all that stuff, they spin me around in front of a street light and say, we've got a confession to make. Now, I'm not a Roman Catholic. So, you know, that can mean different things to different people. But I thought, oh, this will be interesting. i got a confession to make. I said, okay, so what's the deal? And they said, uh, well, um, we were scared to death for you. I said, why? I said, because we knew some of the things you were going to say. And at this campus, we've refined the art of, of hissing speakers when we disagreed with something. And combined, the two of them have been there for 30 years. And they said, we have never in our history heard a speaker use the word of God, use God, the, the term God, reverently. Now, if you want to use it profanely, that's fine. I mean, that's cool. You know, that's, everybody loves that, you know. But if you use it reverently, you get hissed. This was developed during the Vietnam protest era, okay? Speakers come, and, and the students, if, if the speaker says something they didn't like, they, they would show their, you know, this is very mature congeniality on the liberal left, right? Uh, of hissing, you know, the speaker, like a snake. So this is the first time in 30 years we have ever heard a speaker come to campus and use the word God reverently and not be hissed. That struck me. Because suddenly I realized the evangelistic and cultural equity that the Christian community has lost by letting creation stewardship be co-opted by creation worshipers instead of creator worshipers. We're doing okay, Mike? Good. Already got applause in the first five minutes. That's good. That's a good sign. That's a good sign. We're both scared to death of what's going to happen here. <clears throat> You've got to understand, everybody, that most of my life is spent with these organic tree hugger, you know, cosmic Gaia things. So it's, it's refreshing to be with you, but I'm going to bring a challenge. You see, a lot of us in the faith community don't appreciate that when we have trouble expressing the obvious hypocrisy of hugging a tree 
or saving a baby whale and yet being completely in favor of ripping thinking, hearing, forming human babies wiggling from the womb, and that's fine. If you're like me, I can't even wrap my head around that, right? I mean, we, we, how do you, how do you just, how do you, you know, we can't even say it, okay? To the environmental community, a Christian who goes to a Sanctity of Life rally and stops off for Happy Meals on the way is just as hypocritical. Whoa, it's a big deal. And so, I would like us to look at this. All of us can share stories of liberal hypocrisy. They're always, they're all out of the place. But what about ours? You know, if, if you go to your local fellowship group, your church, I don't like to use the church, but we're the church. We're the church going, we're the church on the way to meet. We don't go to church. We are the church. You know, this is this, this, this segregated thinking we have in our Greco-Roman Western linear reductionist systematized, fragmentized <laughs> thinking. But when we go to that place, if we're going to have a potluck, covered dish dinner, and you dare to question, um, shouldn't we use paper plates rather than styrofoam? Or better yet, go down to the Salvation Army and buy a bunch of cheap thrift store plates and wash them at the end. You can't even have that conversation because if you dare to ask the question, you're branded some commie, pinko, liberal, tree hunger, Democrat, you know, weird environmentalist wacko, right? Here's my proposition. I want to propose that all of creation is an object lesson of spiritual truth. That's what it's here for. That's what the physical world is here for. And if it's according to the Westminster Catechism, which I tend to agree with, that the end of the whole duty of man is to bring glory to God and live with him forever, how do we, how do we inculcate bringing glory to God into our visceral physical lives? You see, you know, we're, we're products of this St. Augustinian uh, duality, unfortunately, that spirit is good and physical is evil. And, and I would suggest that, that physical... That physical is an object lesson of spiritual reality. We use the word bring glory to God. We use that as some you know, very you know, spiritual thing. And, 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 and we don't use the word glory in many contests except glory to God. But you know the Bible doesn't segregate glory to just a divine thing. It talks about the glory of old men as their gray hair or no hair. Um, the glory of you know uh, women as their long hair. The glory of young men as their strength. The glory of nations. It talks about the glory of things celestial and the things terrestrial. And the word glory is used biblically in all sorts of very physical contexts. So what does the word glory mean? The glory of God, the glory of something. I would suggest that the, that, that, that the word is really not some sort of real, you know, high academic spiritual word. It's a, very, it's a very specific word that speaks to honoring the distinctiveness of something. What is it that makes it unique? When we bring glory to God, what we're bringing glory to is his unique divinity. His character attributes that we don't have. And so when the Bible speaks 
of the importance of the glory of things terrestrial, the glory of things terrestrial, the glory of young men, old men, women, and, and, and animals, and all these things, is simply using the word to honor and respect the distinctive uniqueness of individuals so that we honor and respect their individual creation, their, their, their specialness. And so on our farm, we dare to ask the question, does it matter? Does God care if we honor the pigness of the pig? The tomatoness of the tomato. Because you see, it's in how we honor the least of these and respect their specific, distinctive, unique character in life. It's how we do the least of these that creates an object lesson for our children and our neighbors of how we're going to honor and respect the glory of God or other people or other cultures. See, we live in a culture that views life as fundamentally mechanical and not biological. The only question is, can we grow pigs fatter, fatter, faster, bigger, cheaper? We all know that that's not very sacred. I mean, the average NFL football player is dead at 57. The reason is because your neck is bigger than your head. You're a freak of nature. Nature weeds you out. (laughs) And so, and so, What we're trying to do here when we ask, does it matter? Does God care if we respect and honor the pigness of the pig? We believe that that is the ethical moral framework on which we honor the Mariness of Mary, the Thomas of Tom, and the Arachnus of Arachnans, or whatever they are. Afghanistan, these Afghanistans, okay? Or, or, or Protestants, Protestants, or Catholics, Catholics, or whatever. It, it's, it's that moral framework. And when we view life as fundamentally mechanical, then it can be manipulated however cleverly hubris can imagine to manipulate it. And we are clever beings. We've got a big brain and opposing thumbs. We've got mechanical and intellectual ability that we can bring to bear on our planet. And we can bring that to bear in ways that are so creative and innovative that we can overrun our ability to spiritually, physically, mentally, or ecologically or emotionally metabolize what we've just innovated. My dad used to call this overrunning our headlights. You know, this is the problem in the movie Jurassic Park. I think there's a fourth one out now, if I'm not mistaken. Jurassic Park, the, the initial one. I've never seen the other three. But the initial one, if you remember, the, 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 the critical... Um, Question in there was you have this, you know, the scientist that's euphoric over what he's created, you know, these, and he's got these raptors and they're, of course, eating cars and people and beginning to destroy civilization as we know it. He's just euphoric over his, uh, over his uh, contributions to technology and innovation. And the journalist gets in his face and he says, but sir, just because we can, should we? That's a pregnant question. That is a pregnant question. And one that we need to ask every day. Just because we can fly flowers from Peruvian boutiques in air freighted, in, in, in refrigerated jets to San Francisco boutiques, should we? And I'll talk about GMOs and things like that a little bit later. But just because we can, should we? So let me ask you this. Has this conversation happened in your house? So children, 
We're going to go out to a farm and get chickens and buy chickens that express their chickenness out on a pasture in a field with fresh air, sunshine, and exercise because that glorifies the chickenness of the chicken. And it is in glorifying the chicken of the chicken and having that for Sunday dinner to create the specialness of the chicken that we practice what it means to bring glory to God. What is His uniqueness, children, and how can we participate in bringing honor to His attributes? That's an interesting conversation. (laughs) You know, what if Dan Cathy, the owner of Chick-fil-A, during the brouhaha of their marriage deal, one man, one woman, had followed that up with another press conference and told the world, not only do we believe in the Judeo-Christian biblical mandate of one man, one woman marriage, We also so much believe in the sanctity of life and the reverence of creation that we're going to begin sourcing our chickens from farms that have them on pasture where the chickens can express their chickenness. (laughs) What would that have done to the conversation? Hmm? Do you agree that that would have fundamentally turned all sorts of things on their head. What? A Christian being interested in animal welfare? This does not compute. This does not compute. You know. <laughs> what this mechanical view toward life has led us down the path, it led us down the path, for example, to mad cow. You know, the U.S. duh, I call it the U.S. duh. We've got all sorts of duhs in the federal government. U.S. duh, F duh, you know. Does all this laughter add to my time? I can't talk when all these people are laughing. (laughs) I'm terribly afraid I'm not going to get everything said I want to say. So here's the deal. The U.S. duh, because life is fundamentally mechanical, said, you know, a cow is just inanimate piles of protoplasmic structure that we can manipulate however cleverly hubris can arrange to manipulate it. And I would suggest that a culture that views its life that way will view its citizens the same way. And other cultures the same way. Whoa. See, it does matter. This is not some esoteric academic religious focus group here. This is real life. And so they came to us and said, we'll take you to free steak dinners if you'll come and learn this new scientific way of growing cows. So... We go and the meeting is about feeding dead cows to cows. We grind them up and we feed them back to cows. And whoo, look, you know, they, they grow faster and fatter and bigger and cheaper. And we say, wait a minute, let's look around the planet and see if there is a God-ordered pattern in which herbivores, I mean, a cow is an herbivore. Are you with me? You know, when we have, when we have uh, uh, visitors to the farm, we do a lot of school tours. Kindergarten class comes, you know. Kids, what do you call an animal that eats only plants? Herbivore. What do you call an animal that eats only meat? Carnivore, like a lion. What if it eats both? And the you know, smartest one says, omnivore. We're standing there in the field with the cows. 
Okay? So I ask this question, I prep them, and then I turn around, I point to them, I say, so what are those? <laughs> Cows? No, 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 no. Herbivores! Okay? Then, children, can you tell me why the most academic, PhD, credentialed, expert people in our society for 30 years told us to feed them meat? And the kids go, ooh, that's crazy, that's stupid, you know. Those kids would be a better administrator of the U.S., duh, than who's up there. Of course, if it were up to me, there wouldn't even be a U.S. duh. I mean, no federal agency has ever been more uh, successful at eliminating its clientele. (laughs) When it was started, we had 40 million farmers. Today, we're down to two. More employees at the U.S. duh than farmers. And the and the budget at the U.S. duh is bigger than the entire farm gate value of all the commodities produced in the U.S. In the U.S. It's crazy. All right, that's just a side note. You got that for free. Okay. <laughs> but they told us to do this, all right? So we looked around and we could not see a template in which this occurred. So we didn't do it. Well, guess what? We were branded by the intellectual commercial, industrial, feed the world community as Luddites, barbarians. What do you want to do? Go back to, you know, hoop skirts, hearth cooking, and washboards. You know, as romantic as that may sound to somebody that's never done it. Backwards, barbarian, you know, people. 30 years later, there's this sudden big global, oops, maybe we shouldn't not have done that. With bovine spongiform encephalopathy. Now, if you learn to say that fast, you sound really intellectual. Bovi, instead of mad cow. You know, you sound, I mean, it's like kind of like the, the names in the Old Testament. You don't have to say them right. Just learn to say them fast and you'll be okay. <laughs> but see, that brings me to the second big point of spiritual object lesson is that God is a God of order. Genesis starts from out of the chaos came order. And one of the things that the faith community has to offer our culture is marriages and families and businesses and and lifestyle of order. The way nature works has pattern. So how does ecology work? How does this planet work? All right, well, there's a sun up there, S-U-N, also an S-O-N. Well, he's everywhere, but... S-U-N. He's up there. Okay. The sun is beaming down energy to us. And this energy is being, you know, these sunbeams, these esoteric sunbeams that you can't, you know, catch, they're converted by photosynthetic activity into fungible, tradable, weighable, physical evidence called biomass. Vegetation, trees, leaves, grass. Okay. And the most efficacious of all of these types of plants the, the most, the, the, the most um, efficient one is grass. It's not trees. It's not bushes. It's grass. In the echelon, it's grass is the highest, then bushes, and then trees. So if you really want to catch sunlight, you want prairie. You want, you want grass. Okay? Now, I'm not saying we cut all the trees, but I'm just, this is the way it is. This is why all the deep soils in the world are made under prairies. They're not made under forests. They're made under prairies, okay? But this grass grows in a sigmoid curve, an S curve, okay? It starts kind of slow, then it grows real fast, and then it 
kind of dies down. I call this diaper grass, teenage grass, nursing home grass. <laughs> so the reason there are herbivores around the planet, from alpacas and guinea pigs to, to wildebeests and, and zebras and bison and caribou, and all right, the reason for all of these herbivores is because this grass, this forage, grows in a sigmoid curve and God wants it to stop at senescence and not go clear past nursing home and die. He wants it to be pruned like a viticulturalist would prune a vineyard or an orchardist would prune an apple tree to be pruned back to start this fast metabolic growth curve. That's why there are animals, that's why there are herbivores throughout the world and the herbivores are the foundation of the ecological system. And so if we're going to build soil, we do it with perennials, not annuals. And what does our country subsidize? Only annuals, not perennials. I'm not asking for rent, please, not perennial subsidies. Just let's not have any subsidies. And, and, and so soil is built with animals, perennials, and predation. Fire, human, and animal predation. That is the, that is the way this pruning, this, this restart, the biomass accumulation restart button actually works. And, and, and so on our farm, what we do is we move the cows, the herbivores. We don't have buffalo. We don't have fire. If you start a fire, the fire department comes and puts it out. So what we do is we're mimicking the pattern is animal movement. You know, we live in a time now in our sophisticated techno glitzy culture when it's assumed that animals don't have to move. But one of the foundational patterns in nature is animals move. Okay? So on our farm, we take some very simple ideas from nature. You know, they're pretty, from God's design, there are some very basic principles. One is animals move. <laughs> Why is that so hard to get? <laughs> one of the reasons that they move is because they are the great fertility democratizer. How is nature going to move? And I'm sorry if I use nature and that offends you. God's design, I mean, I'm used to using nature because I'm normally not in faith areas. So just pardon me on that. But, but the, the, the way this works is that you've got gravitational movement of all this solar collected biomass and mineral and energy that the plants are, are creating here. The gravitational pull moves the mineral and the biomass downhill into fertile valleys. Well, how are you going to get that back up on the hills and not just continue to drain the fertility off of the hills? Animals go down into fertile valleys and eat, and because there's predation, they want to get on a high spot so they can look out and see who's going to come and get them. So they walk back up on top of the hill to ruminate and poop, okay? And that moves the mineral and the fertility from the rich valley where it gravitationally moved and move it back up on the top of the hill. So animals are God's way to create egalitarian opportunity, equal opportunity soil development throughout the planet. And we live in a time where the sophisticated conventional wisdom is we don't need animals. In fact, we can segregate animals and just, and just replicate what comes out of their back end from petroleum-based something in a bag. So that, there can, so that we don't need living things 
to go through their cycle of life and decompose to die to make other living things. It's one of the greatest civilizational uh, um, problems of chemical fertilization is that somehow we can take life away from the life, death, decomposition, regeneration, life, death, decomposition, regeneration. So these animals are depositing this wonderful manure around and, and reproducing after their kind. Let's, uh, let, let's, let's just talk about another uh, spiritual uh, truth here. Um, here's the idea. What does a food and farming system look like that exemplifies these deep biblical truths that we all hold dear? You know, um, one of them is, I think we would all agree here in this room, that we believe in a whosoever will salvation. Right? You know, it's not exclusive now, it's exclusive to the ones who accept Christ, but it's not exclusive to ethnicity. It's not exclusive to, you know, who your parents were. It's not exclusive to a socioeconomic status. It's a completely whosoever will deal, John three sixteen. So I would suggest that a farm that exhibits a whosoever will kind of persona would be a farm model that's easy to enter and exit. One of the reasons the average American farmer is now 60 years old is, when, is because when the capitalization hurdles to entry are so high that young people can't get in, if young people can't get in, old people can't get out. Okay? So on our farm, we've developed mobile infrastructure, modular infrastructure, and a management-intensive system. You got those three M's, all you good preachers out there. It's all nice, you know. Mobile, modular, and management-intensive. That replaces capital-intensive infrastructure, pharmaceuticals, and chemicals. And so we have replaced those things. And the result is that mobile, modular, and management-intensive allows a young person to get in on a shoestring Look, if you're going to build, if you're going to grow a chicken for Tyson, the first thing you've got to build is a $500,000 barn to house half a million chickens in. If you want to start with a mobile modular management intensive system like we use, you can start on a couple hundred bucks in your backyard. And you can build your modules and scale as it goes up. It's a very easy way to enter and exit. So it's a whosoever will thing. Let's go to the other end of the spectrum. That's production. Let's go to the other end of the spectrum and talk about a food desert. You familiar with food deserts? It's one of the, it's one of the you know, biggest issues of the, the foodie, the uh, social justice groups. What's the answer to the food desert? I would suggest a whosoever will participatory mentality. Well, what does he mean by that? What I mean is, instead of having a government agency or welfare or food bank creating additional dependency in those areas, most food deserts are in kind of run-down parts of town where there's a lot of empty, vacant lots around. Well, if some enterprising young person there, yep, the single mom of four, yep, I'm talking about her, wants to take a vacant lot, put a garden in it, have some chickens and, and rabbits in there, and start making uh, um, uh quiche or pot pies or heavy stews in her uh, uh, tenement kitchen and selling them in the neighborhood, suddenly you have 
food security from the bottom up embedded in the social structure and in the landscape of the community. But if somebody dared to be so innovative, within five minutes they'd have 10 knocks on the door, first from the building inspector, then the zoning administrator, then the food safety uh, uh, administrator, then the, you know, the, the, the HACCP administrator, the label administrator, the OSHA administrator. The... Are you with me? When a person can't put in a garden and use their own domestic kitchen to make some food to sell to the neighbor next door, that is an absolute cultural denial of a whosoever will participatory food culture. And I think that we in the faith community should use that kind of language to the folks who think there's nothing better than another bureaucrat intervening in the marketplace between two neighbors who want to do commerce with each other. I was... When you have the government industrial complex orthodoxy defining and sanctioning what's okay to eat, I say when the government gets between my lips and my throat, that's an invasion of privacy. And when they decide what I can and cannot eat, suddenly you have all sorts of squirrely things like, like raw milk is hazardous and Mountain Dew and Coca-Cola are safe. <laughs> and it's not about food safety. It's about access to the market. You can go out and shoot a deer on a 70 degree November day drag it a mile through the squirrel dung and the sticks and the rocks, parade it prominently on the front end of your blazer around town in the afternoon blazing sun, string it up for a week, hang it in the backyard, and then butcher it out and and, and feed it to your children. (laughs) And you're a great American hunter. But if you dress one chicken at the appropriate time and sell it to a neighbor, you're suddenly a criminal. Now you can give the chicken away, That's very benevolent. (laughs) But if you exchange money, you've suddenly become a criminal. What is it about the exchange of money that suddenly turned it from a benevolent act to a hazardous substance? (laughs) And just so you know, I am a believer in complete free drugs. I mean, all legalization of all drugs, all of them. Because the governments can tell you what you can smoke or shoot up, can also tell you what you can't eat. And it makes my great-grandmother, great-aunts roll over in their grave. They were members of the Women's Temperance Union back in the early days that brought prohibition. And nothing, nothing created. Yeah, this, is why, this is why Christians in the faith community, we have to be really careful about what we get righteously indignant about. Because sometimes we end up tripping up ourselves. Like prohibition, which for all time gave legal precedent for the government to decide what we can and cannot eat. So the answer to food deserts is not bringing in food from outside from food banks. You can't food bank your way into food security. The answer for food deserts is to free up the entrepreneurial capacity in these food desert areas to extend their Uh, uh, food production and commerce into their communities so that they bring themselves up from the bottom up instead of the top down and outside in. 
The problem is that when you have the government intervening in these embryonic innovative startups, you shut down innovation. And that's the biggest tragedy in culture is, you know, it's one thing for the government to require a $1,000 thermometer if you're going to make charcuterie by the, uh, by the tractor trailer load. But if you're going to if you're going to do some experimentation with little uh, kitchen batches of charcuterie to see if there's a market, if you like it, if your recipes are good, if your neighbors want to buy it, buying a $1,000 thermometer is prohibitive. And this is the tragedy in America today. We have a, a, a nascent, pent-up, just, just quivering desire for entrepreneurism that is marginalized, demonized, and criminalized by a host of regulators, like the Declaration of Independence says, the, the King George has sent to our shores swarms of investigators to eat out our substance and harass our people. And that's what we've got today that is keeping innovation down. Look, our farm, we've checked our chicken manure and it doesn't even have Listeria campylobacter E. coli in it. Avian influenza, all it takes is two blades of fresh grass a day. Chickens don't get high path avian influenza. We've got the answers for all this stuff. But instead of, instead of the culture embracing it and saying, wow, this should be the new standard. I mean, we had our chickens empirically tested for, for uh, 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 bacterial contamination. We, we averaged 133 CFU, colony forming units per milliliter to the second permutation. I've already told you more than I understand about it. But the U.S. duh stamp sanctioned 40 chlorine bath chickens in the supermarket averaged 3,600 CFU per mil in the second. We know how to make clean food, safe food. But what happens is the, 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 the regulations are scale prejudicial to small operations and discriminatory to small operations who can't stand all the infrastructure, paperwork, overhead requirements, and they inadvertently concessionize the big operators and the status quo. And that then translates down to very expensive local food and makes us look like a bunch of elitists. When actually it has nothing to do with cost or price, all it has to do is with the prejudicial, discriminatory, scale, uh, scale prejudicial uh, elements of market intervention by the government. Okay, how am I doing? Another five minutes. Okay. How about a food and farming system that illustrates faith? You see, what I want to do is I want people to come to the farm and I want them to leave saying, oh, we've just seen forgiveness, faith, relationships, abundance, grace. Are you with me? Yeah, are you? Object lessons. Are you with me? Okay. So what about faith? You know, faith is, faith is believing in something you can't see. Well, let me tell you something. There is a huge invisible world around us. You know, we have an electron microscope today. And if you look through that viewfinder, pull up a little handful of soil, put it in your uh, viewfinder electron microscope, peer into that thing, and you're going to see a, like, like a four-legged cow-looking thing, you know, coming kind of, you know, walking across there, you know, he's grazing on some paramecians and some cilia, you know, and he's, he's you know, slobbering around saliva, you know. All of a sudden, in from two o'clock comes a, a, a six-legged, spear-headed, narwhal-looking thing that impales the size of the, you know, and goes, you know, sucks 
plucks out all that aqueous stuff, you know, and slurps it up. And before the boop, boop, boop can fall down, or down or up, or, you know, however he falls, he, you know, in the soil, they're falling all sorts of ways. Here comes from, from uh, uh, 8 o'clock, using military things here, uh, comes this uh, ten-legged centipede-looking thing with, with, with scissors on his head. You know, he comes up and whap and knocks the head off the boop, 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 thing, you know, and you know, eats it all up. And I mean, this all happens in like, you know, half a second. You're looking in the viewfinder. Wow, I mean, this makes Steven Spielberg look like a kindergartner. <laughs> and all this community of beings is happening right here. In fact, MIT says you and I are only 15% human. Did you know that you have three microbes on every cell of your body? There are more beings in one double handful of healthy soil than there are people on the planet. A little plant like this. Is this real? I don't know. <laughs> can have, can have, are you ready for this? A hundred thousand miles of mycelium root hairs out and there's a, this whole economy, and the plant's bringing in carbon dioxide, it's breaking off the carbon, turning it into polysaccharides, and it's trading sugar to the bacteria, and they're bringing in minerals, and there's, there's the, 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 these millions and millions of hair-like single microbe things are having their farmer's markets, schools, you know, they're doing conferences. Oh, they probably got even a Democrat, Libertarian Party down there. And they got all sorts of things going on in the soil. And in our gut, we have three trillion of these in our insides. Ingesting, we've already ingested. Digesting what we just ate. This is not a sterile place. It's a place of magnificent, awesome, unbelievable being activity with sentient understanding of how to live. And it's invisible to our naked eyes. We didn't even know it existed until the microscope. And yet, when's the last time you heard of a person going into the banker to get a loan for a new business and the banker who is completely enthralled by this business idea he sits back well this is quite a business plan best one I've seen in years in fact I think you're going to be a millionaire in fact I want to be your partner we're going to be multi-millionaires together but before I give you the $500,000 to start this business I got a question what's this going to do to the earthworms in your community what's this going to do to the mycelium and the azobacter bacteria have you ever heard that and yet, gentle people, I'm telling you that this invisible world is far more relevant and important in our lives than whether the Dow Jones goes up and down. And yet, we don't think about it. Who thought about that world in the shower today? You see, faith, if you don't 
think about it. If you don't think about the invisible, I'm suggesting that we need to think about the microbial community and their health and our, our internal gut and the, and, and the soil development and whether the, the actinomycetes are happy today and the earthworms are copulating today. That's important. It's just as important. And it is, a, it is an object lesson of training ourselves to appreciate that the visible is completely and utterly dependent on the invisible. And that the invisible world is more real and more powerful and more profound than the world that we see. So we have this idea in our culture, you know, the germ theory. Antimicrobial soap. We got to kill all these things. Rather than understanding that there are way more good ones than bad ones. You know, we have this idea that, that, that the earth is some, is some reluctant, mean, evil intentioned creation. And we have to wrestle and I'm going to make you and I'm going to control and I'm going to make you. When actually the earth is an abundant manifestation of provision and sufficiency from a benevolent creator and wants to come along as a, a benevolent partner of abundance and plenty that we caress and massage as a lover. Not abuse as a conquistador rapist. And the story of human civilization, more often than not, is one that entails a conquistador mentality and one of, I mean, the U.S. now has 700 dead zones of riparian areas. We did that. We've depleted the aquifers in the Midwest. What is the answer? Is the answer to withdraw from the environment? Oh, we dare not touch it. What I call environmentalism by abandonment. So the only thing we can do with integrity with the environment is to, to lock it up in a state park, a wilderness area, you know, some sort of a, a, a special green zone where, where nobody can go. Or is it to use our intellectual mechanical ability and our hands as extensions of redemptive capacity from our benevolent creator and extend redemptive healing to our landscape rather than hurt? Actually building relationships so that we have environmentalism by what I call participation rather than environmentalism by abandonment. How do we do that? Well, 600 years ago, we now know that as much as 10% of the American land base, it wasn't America back then, but 600 years ago, 10% of the land base of what we call the U.S. now was under beaver ponds. Beaver ponds. Boy, imagine if wetland uh, uh, EPA had been around then. <laughs> but what can we do now? We have intellectual and mechanical ability. 
So what do we do? Just farm out those, 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 those rich terrace beaver pond silt bed loams, you know, and, and just farm them out until it's all infertile? Or use the petroleum bonanza, a gift of at, the t- at, at a tipping point in human history when we were desperate for land healing, the Dust Bowl, and, and we discovered, you know, the, all of the U.S., Australia, and New Zealand was settled, and we cut all the trees in New Zealand, and, and everything was going uh, uh, um, south. What if... Instead of embracing chemicals and a mechanical approach to life, what if instead we had used our mechanical intellectual capacity to start massively biomass regeneration through composting and chipping and use landscapers to develop ponds in highlands like the permaculturalists to rehydrate the landscape even better than the beaver ponds and to actually build soil faster than the buffalo and the prairies and to actually go to a carbon-centric, carbon sequestration system, we would, we would have not only fed the planet, we would have done it without three-legged salamanders, infertile frogs, and dead zones the size of New Jersey and the Gulf of Mexico. You see, we didn't have a Manhattan Project for compost. It's almost as if we have a, we have a hubris love affair with 10, 10, 10 chemical... Fr- Look what I did. <laughs> I am clever. I can outsmart nature. God's patterns don't matter. And we're in love with our own intellectual capacity. As if a bag of 10, 10, 10 is more sexy than a compost pile. I would suggest that a compost pile has way more sex going on it than a bag of 10, 10, 10. But. <laughs> Finally, and I'll close with this. What about, what about a farm food system that exudes sacrifice? The idea of sacrifice, that out of death comes life. Is there anything more precious to the faith community than the fact that Jesus conquered death, that our faith conquered death, that our Savior is not in the tomb, that, 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 and, and, that, and that to, and that if, if we are going to live forever, we must die daily. We must die to ourselves and, sac- and accept a sacrificial atonement for, our, for us. Th- that is precious. And we see that in life all around us. You know, to the animal welfare, the militant vegans and the vegetarians who say, come on, haven't we really gotten beyond, you know, eating animals and that sort of thing? I look at them and I just say, listen, folks, everything is eating and being eaten. If you don't believe it, go lie naked in your flower bed for three days and see what gets eaten. <laughs> and perhaps one of the most profound refreshers of the sanctity of life and the preciousness of life eternal is that on this planet, in order for something to live, something has to die. And we express our most profound glory as humans when we die to one another in community, in servitude to each other. Well, they say, well, but sentient animals are different than plants. Well, I beg to differ. We now know that plants exude phytochemicals to make their leaves bitter so that when herbivores are grazing, the plants secrete phytochemicals that make bitterness to protect themselves from the 
from, from too much, um, from being too overly succulent for the animals to eat. I call that pretty sentient. How about maple trees? You know, when the wind blows, the maple trees quit flowing. Why? Because the sap is the maple tree's blood. And the tree, when the wind blows, is afraid that it might lose a branch, which would be a big major break that would have to send sap to for healing of the wound. So it shuts off the little borehole in the trunk and says, I'm not going to send anything to you. I'm waiting for a big break. When the wind stops, no order breaking, I'll start the sap up again. If that's not sentient, I don't know what is. And now every time we look around today, we're seeing more and more understanding of that this, that this, this, this God-made awesome design is way beyond our capacity to understand. And so I think that it would, be, it would behoove us, instead of walking around into this awesome, mysterious, uh, uh, God-created place, like a bunch of swashbuckling sailors that, that own the place, if we would come humbly, protectively, nurturing, when things die for us to live, we create sacredness in the sacrifice by honoring the life while it's living. And when we view the life while it's living as just inanimate, we can do whatever we want to, confine them in a house, shoot them up with drugs, give them a bunch of GMO grains or whatever. When we view them as mechanical things, we cheapen the sacrifice. And I suggest that when the faith community begins embracing these concepts and conversing with our neighbors to bring a visceral, practical manifestation of our theology into our daily walk, daily thought process, we will see testimonial equity. What we would say on the street, our Christian street cred would gain exponentially in our community as we become the stewards of a creation that's bigger and grander than we can even imagine. And we get to participate as God's hands and feet in this great choreographed object lesson of his glory. Now may all of your carrots grow long and straight. May your radishes be large and not pithy. May tomato blossom end rot affect your Monsanto neighbor's tomatoes. <laughs> may, the, uh, may the coyotes be struck blind at your pastured chickens. May the rain fall gently on your fields, the wind be always at your back, your children rise and call you blessed. And may we, as stewards, leave a legacy of an abundant nest beyond what we inherited. Thank you so much for letting me visit with you.